Well, this, we're in a series on the Holy Spirit, and I've been so excited about it, and uh, it's going to be finishing up next week. Pastor Danielle is going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and we are told to desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And we love following what God's Word says. And in the series, we looked at, like last week, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and just a number of things that he does. And I didn't even cover off everything. And we really need the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to talk this morning about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And immediately for one or two, you may go, what's that? Never heard of that. That's all right. We'll walk through some scriptures and I believe you'll get an understanding of what God's word says about the fullness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There may be one or two go, oh no, because you've had a bad experience with somebody. Uh, Maybe well-intentioned, but kind of try to push something on you or make something happen. Or maybe even told you that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. And that's not what we believe. And we're going to unpack that just a little bit this morning. But I would encourage you to be like the Christians, the Bereans, that were more noble, Luke tells us, than those who were in Thessalonica. Because they received the word with all readiness of mind, and then search the scriptures daily whether these things were so. And so have an open heart, open mind, but then you can double check everything that's been said. The other thing, and I'm just going to mention this, is John Bevere, uh, who's a great teacher, has put out a, a course and it's actually free. You can download Messenger X, get all the courses free, or you can log in on a web page. And the series is The Holy Spirit, an introduction. And, and it goes through a whole lot of stuff. And there's video clips, there's all sorts of things. But it, if, if you've got more questions, I'd encourage you, maybe it's a small group or whatever else, to do that. So, the scripture says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to come with me into the upper room where the disciples are still afraid, intimidated by all that's gone on. And Jesus appears to them on a number of occasions and speaks to them. And in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 21 to 22, it says that Jesus appeared and he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is reminiscent of what God did at the beginning of creation when he made mankind, when he made Adam, that he formed him and shaped him. And then he breathed the Ruach, the Spirit, the breath of God into him. And he became a living being. And this is the moment of new creation for the disciples. The Spirit comes to indwell them. And all that was accomplished at Calvary and the suffering of Jesus and then the power of the resurrection is brought to bear in their lives. And they are what the Bible says, born again. But he also tells them, and we're going to look at some of these verses, not to go and do anything until they receive power from on high, which is now the day of Pentecost. It's not this event. The scripture says in Acts 1 verse 4 to 5, and again, another appearance of Jesus to the disciples. And it says, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them. Everybody say he commanded them. 
He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. Jesus talked quite a lot about what the Holy Spirit was going to do. And then he says, you shall be baptized. And the word baptized is to be immersed, to be saturated with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So again, he doesn't make it as a suggestion. So they are born again. He's breathed the Spirit in them just like God breathed life into Adam. And now in the new creation, they are born again. But he says, you're not ready yet to fulfill the Great Commission. Don't do anything. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. He commanded them not to leave until the Holy Spirit had come upon them. So I want to say just firstly, talk a little bit about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, what it is not, what it is not. Number one, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not a requirement for salvation. There are some people, and I mentioned it in my introduction, who say that unless you speak in tongues as an evidence of the Holy Spirit baptism, you're not a Christian. The Bible does not teach that. Look at this, and there's so many verses I could appeal to, but I'm just going to look at one here. Ephesians 1 verse 13. He says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. The gospel is the good news of salvation. He says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He's saying the moment you heard the message, the good news, and you responded to it with faith, putting your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, saying he did everything that needed to be done in his suffering and his resurrection, then the minute you believe that, he says the Holy Spirit put a seal on you. He came to indwell you. And all that needs to be accomplished to bring you out of darkness into the kingdom of God takes place as the Holy Spirit applies the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection to your lives. When you believed, and it's the moment when we are saved through faith and the power of God's grace. So the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not a requirement for salvation. And the Holy Spirit indwells you, even if you haven't experienced the baptism, the overflow of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a sign that you are more spiritual than everybody else. In fact, you'll see a little bit later, it's actually an acknowledgement of something else. But the baptism in the Holy Spirit, accompanying with speaking in tongues, is a gift from God and one that God wants us to receive. Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter said when he preached the gospel to all the Jews that had gathered around the temple, and he said, they said, what must we do to be saved? And they said, number one, repent, but turn from what you're doing and turn towards Jesus. Number two, be baptized by full immersion. And they did that on the, there's actually pools there where there were ceremonial pools. They baptized people in there. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And subsequent to repentance and baptism, this is a New Testament pattern being established here, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
It's a gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something you have to work yourself up into a frenzy about. It's something that you receive as a gift from your heavenly father because he loves you and he wants you and I to live empowered lives. The, the, the apostles prioritized the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Philip, one of the early deacons filled with the Holy Spirit, goes to preach in Samaria. And a whole lot of people get saved, but he doesn't yet understand or isn't teaching on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So let's pick up what happens. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers. Notice they were believers. They had just given their lives to Jesus and they had been baptized. So they prayed um, for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, once you notice again, it identifies the sequence. They are new believers. They've actually been baptized in water, but they haven't yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the urgency with which the early church dealt with this is the minute they hear there's a revival broken out in Samaria and there's believers there, they send two of the leading apostles, Peter and John, to go and pray that they might receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the journey is about 100 kilometers and they weren't automobiles. They had best had donkeys or they walked there. This is a quite a few days journey because it's important that the early church and us need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that comes when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let me look at another one just quickly in that regard before we jump into what the baptism in the Holy Spirit is. Acts 19 verse 1 and following. Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. What did he find? Disciples, people who'd put their trust that Jesus was the Messiah. And notice the first question that he asked them. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So here are some people who are sincere followers, devoted disciples, putting their trust in Jesus, the Messiah, as Lord and Saviour, but they have a lack of teaching or understanding about some other things that God has available. Because remember, what must we do to be saved? Repent, be baptised, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what does he do? He asks the next question. He said, then what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. They replied, and on hearing this, he baptized them all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. He already was in them. He's now coming upon them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So the Spirit baptism is an experience that follows conversion. And I can't go through all the passages, but in sometimes they 
believe, get filled with the Spirit and then get baptized in water. But the thing that always comes first is them believing and putting their trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And then the baptism in the Holy Spirit is subsequent. For these ones in Ephesus, it was probably years after they'd put their trust in Jesus. They now come into the fullness of the Spirit. The disciples received the Spirit in the upper room when Jesus breathed on them, but they were clothed in power and filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Again, Jesus stressing this in Luke 24, 49. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So we see these terms being filled with the Spirit, being baptised in the Spirit. Here Luke refers to it as being clothed with power, something that comes upon you, the power of the Holy Spirit upon you, not just His work within you, but His power upon you. So let's talk about the baptism in the Spirit, what it is. I've touched on a few things that it's not. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Give a man an electric shock and I'll warrant you he will know it. But if he has the Holy Ghost, he will know it much more. Now, the Holy Ghost is the Holy Spirit. He's not a ghost. He's not Casper the Friendly. It's not anything weird like that. It was just an old King James reference to the Holy Spirit was the Holy Ghost. And Spurgeon preaching in that time quotes it in that way. This is not something we could just hope for. This is something we can receive as a gift and be filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered. And if the early church need empowerment, I think we need it just as much, if not more so, in our modern society today. So I'm going to look at not every incident in Acts, we just don't have the time for that, but two, the day of Pentecost and then the Gentiles' day of Pentecost. Now, there's a principle in Bible study and interpretation. It's the principle of first mention. And the principle of first mention is what happened the first time. And it kind of lays ground rules for how you look at every other passage or subsequent passage that speaks to that topic. Then there's second mention and then there's complete mention. As I said, we don't have time this morning to do complete mention. And everybody who's got lunch in their minds already, goes, thank you, Jesus. It's not going to be that long. So let's look at the day of Pentecost. Remember, Jesus has commanded them, even though he's commissioned them, he's commanded them not to do anything until they have received power from on high, which he says, my father promised he would send the Holy Spirit to you. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a wind, but when he rushed into the room or came into the room, it sounded like a rushing wind from heaven. And the whole house where they were sitting was filled. The Holy Spirit filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. It wasn't literally tongues of fire. We see these pictures sometimes of somebody trying to depict it, but it seemed like this. They were ablaze, as it were, with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Now, a tongue is just another word for a language. We even use it today, like what's your mother tongue? And if we went around the room today, we've got people who were born and raised in Australia. Good on you, mate. And then there are some of us who came here from different nations. For me, my mother tongue is English with a South African accent. For others, your mother tongue might be Kenyan or Nigerian or, or Portuguese or Spanish. It's simply a tongue is the language, is a language. So it's referring to a spiritual language that the Holy Spirit imparts when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And just notice this, all of them were filled, not just some of them, and the Holy Spirit began to speak, uh, sorry, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, as the Spirit helped them. So they had to take a step of faith to speak what was prompted or dropped into their heart or mind. And we'll talk about that just a little bit in a moment. But this is first mention. This is how it happened the first time. And it sets ground rules, if you work, of how you understand other passages. The word filled there in Acts 2.4 simply means to be saturated, to supply to excess, to be influenced with or by something. So, so filled that you are controlled by it or influenced by it. And the sign of the infilling of the Spirit was that believers began to speak in other tongues. In Acts 2 verse 32 and following, Again, Peter preaching and trying to explain what was happening on the day of Pentecost to the crowd that had gathered when these disciples, formerly fearful, now spilled out and speaking in tongues and this enormous crowd gathered. And after Peter had finished preaching, explaining it all and all that Jesus had done, there are 3,000 men plus women and children who give their lives to Jesus. But listen to what he says. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. He is exalted to the right hand of God. And he has received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, who has been poured out and, oh, sorry, and the, oh, I'll start that again. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Just notice that little phrase. They could see the impact of the Spirit in the person's life, the baptism, the outpouring, but they could also hear it. You could see it and you could hear it. And this becomes, again, an important principle as we unpack this. The sign of the infilling of the Holy Spirit in these instances was that they began to speak in other tongues, in other languages. Some people experience an incredible encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I believe it could be the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but they don't speak in tongues. All I would encourage in you, I think you can. But you've got to take a step of faith. And maybe even with this teaching, it'll unlock something in your head. Now, we're not going to impose that on anybody. You can at the end of this go, oh, that was nice, but I disagree with you. That's okay. That's the spirit in which I'm bringing it. And I hope in the spirit in which you're receiving it. But if you have had an incredible encounter with the Holy Spirit, just simply ask, 
Father, can I also get a release of the gift of tongues, heavenly languages? And I'm going to explain that just a little bit in the time that we've got. So tongue, as I've said, is simply a language. And Paul, in particular, talks about three distinct manifestations of the gift of tongues. And that's where sometimes we get kind of confused and a little bit like, oh, what's he talking about now? And, and you hear th things taken out of a context. So the first gift of tongues that is imparted is assigned to unbelievers. This occurs when the Holy Spirit transcends our intellect and gives us the ability to speak in another earthly language that we never learned. I wanted to just stress that. Another earthly language that you didn't learn, that you cannot speak without a supernatural power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And he's talking about this manifestation of tongues. Let me just give you another verse in case you're saying, really? You got any else from that? It's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 5 and following. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And they heard the sound. This is the apostles, uh, the, the 120 disciples spilling out from the upper room, speaking in tongues. Uh, because they remember, they were all filled and they all spoke in tongues that the scripture records. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So this is the supernatural sign where in occasions somebody speaks in tongues and they are speaking a language they haven't learned and the other person goes, how did you speak in that language. I have a friend who was in a meeting who somebody spoke in tongues in an appropriate setting and it was in perfect German that they'd never learned and there was a German person that said, man, your German's good. John Bevere tells a story of when he was preaching in Colorado and uh, it was a large auditorium and one of his staff members was sitting towards the back and just felt this prompting to speak in tongues the whole way through the message. Now, it wasn't yelling out loud. It wasn't intrusive. It wasn't contradicting the biblical instructions that there are around that sort of thing, but just praying. And there was a person sitting just in front of them. And the whole way through John's preaching, the staff member prayed in tongues or spoke in tongues. The end of the service, this guy turns around and said, your French is immaculate. I've never heard anybody speak with such an accurate accent. This was a French person and a French teacher. And he said, and what was even more amazing, you quoted verses before John read them. And that person became, it was a sign to an unbeliever. And maybe if we followed the prompting of the Holy Spirit, we may hear of these sorts of incidents more often. So there's the sign to the unbeliever. Then Paul talks quite a lot in 1 Corinthians about how the gift of tongues should be used in corporate worship. 
And he always says the gift of tongues needs to have an interpretation. So what would happen is somebody would speak out in tongues in a loud way because it's now a gift that's been imparted to the church. You'll see, I'll show you that in the moment. But they need to make sure there's somebody who can interpret. Now, this is not a translation. It's an interpretation. And so they could be speaking in a heavenly language, probably won't be in an earthly language, but in a heavenly language, and the Bible speaks of heavenly languages in that way, and somebody interprets. And Paul says it's the equivalent to prophecy, tongues and interpretation. And the key to understanding those passages is it says it edifies the body of Christ. It edifies other believers. When there's tongues and interpretation or any of the other gifts, it's not, and I don't want to steal Danielle's message here, but the, the gifts of the Spirit that are listed, the nine of them in 1 Corinthians 12, are not for your edification or your glorification. They are actually there to bless somebody else, to impart something to somebody. You're just the delivery person. So he says tongues needs to be interpreted when it's brought as a gift and the purpose of it is not edifying the individual but edifying the body. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 and then 10. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Notice what is it given for? The common good. It's given for others. And then he lists them, and I'm just cutting out the others, not because they're not important, but to another speaking in different kinds of tongues and still to another the interpretation of tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14, 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. So that, what? The church may be edified. So the gift of tongues for interpretation is so that the church can be uh, edified, built up. It's for the common good, it's not for the individual's good. But then Paul also speaks about tongues as a personal prayer, praise and language of intercession. And this is a wonderful thing, the ability to pray in tongues in a heavenly language where your understanding is not engaged. We're going to see the Bible actually talks about that. So let's just go. This is the third aspect of speaking in tongues. Tongues as a personal prayer language, as a praise language that can be spoken or sung. And tongues as a means of intercession where the Holy Spirit prays through you. And he's no longer talking now about the public ministry of tongues that needs to be interpreted or the sign to the unbeliever where they supernaturally speak in an earthly language that they've never learnt. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and following. If I pray in a tongue, he's talking about a heavenly language, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. In other words, you speak in tongues and you have no idea what you are talking about, but you're surrendering to the Holy Spirit to pray through you and for you, and sometimes intercession for others, which we'll look at in a moment. And it, the, the way you understand this is Paul then says, this edifies you. 
Remember, the gift of tongues and interpretation edifies the church. It's for the common good. But this now, he says, edifies you. We'll keep reading. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? He says, I will pray with my spirit and I'll also pray with my understanding. He said, I'm not gonna give up praying in my mother tongue, but I'm also gonna use this gift of tongues, this heavenly prayer language and allow the Holy Spirit to pray through me, to praise through me. I will sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. And occasionally, and I wanna get off track here, people say, does the devil understand that tongue? Partly my answer is who cares? No, 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 get this, it's a heavenly language. It could be possible as you speak in tongues in this way, the devil doesn't understand. It's like a code language between your God. But I think what's more important is I don't understand. And you go, well, that's a bit scary. No, no, it's not, it's wonderful, it's incredible. Because I could have just prayed in English, a completely selfish, self-centered prayer. And then I start praying in tongues and the Holy Spirit says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't give him that, give him this. <laughs> this is what he really needs, or this is what there is. And to me, that's the wonder of it. And the faith in it, to trust that God is good and what the Holy Spirit will intercede through me and pray through me or praise through me is exactly what's needed in a situation and untouched by impure motive on my part. You may have totally pure motives in everything. I struggle in that area. True confession of a senior pastor. First Corinthians 14.2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people. Now remember earlier, the gift of tongues as in the gifts of the Spirit is for the common good, does edify the church, is for people. But he's now talking about the personal prayer language. And he says, um, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. And it is an incredible thing to pray in tongues, to praise in tongues. In the book of Jude, only one chapter long, verse 20 and 21. But you, dear friends... By building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Notice again, this manifestation of tongues, praying in the Holy Spirit does what? It builds me up. And if you do it, it builds you up. This is not the gift to the church. This is God's gift to you. It's also a means of incredible intercession. And I've had the experience I, I, when I, I don't memorize the tongue that I've got or the tongues because there's a few that come out. I just start speaking in tongues by faith and just flows. I have confidence and trust in it, in the Holy Spirit, I mean, to, to pray through me in that way. And sometimes the tongue will change and it becomes occasionally almost a little bit militant or strong or slightly different. And I kind of figure that at that time, I'm not praying for me, I'm actually interceding for something, for a breakthrough. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8:28. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And I want you to notice something here. We shouldn't be afraid of this. We pray in this way, or the Holy Spirit prays through this way, because we are weak, not because we are strong. It's in our weakness. And I know there's times in my life, and I'm sure you've had the same week, say, God, I have no idea how to pray for this situation. I just don't know what I should pray for. Should I pray for this? Should I pray for that? And as you begin to pray in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your weakness, when you don't know what to pray, how to pray, actually says, I've got this. Just give me your tongue. Just give me, uh, uh, trust me to pray and intercede through you. Tongue therefore affirms our utter dependence on God in all things. I think one of the reasons I love the whole issue of tongues being an evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is because James says, if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect person. Uh, how many perfect people do we have here? Never misspoken, got angry, said something you wish you hadn't said, whatever. Of course, all of us, we know that. But when I surrender my tongue to the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, I actually hand over control of my life in an incredible way to the Lord in that moment, in that situation. No wonder from this perspective, and I've just touched on a few things here. There's so many other verses we're not going to look at today. don't have the time. But from this perspective, no wonder the Apostle Paul values speaking in tongues so highly. And in fact, he says this in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul was committed to exercising this gift that was given to him. The gift of the Holy Spirit evidenced with the speaking of tongues. So we've looked at the day of Pentecost and a few things that flow out of that. Now we're going to look at the Gentile day of Pentecost. This is shorter, trust me. We, 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 we're heading in the right direction. It's not going to be as long as what we've just done, okay? So Acts chapter 10 introduces us to Cornelius, a devoted God-fearing Roman centurion who was gracious to the poor and was a person who prayed to God. He hadn't converted but he was really open to Jewish faith and what was going on in, the, in Judaism at that time. At this point, salvation had not come to the Gentiles. It was, they were preaching to the Jews only. So God sent an angel to visit Cornelius. And the angel said to him, there's a man in another city in Joppa, now modern day Jaffa, um, go to him and he'll tell you what to do. Now, when you notice, the angel didn't preach the gospel to him. The angel said to him, go and send for Peter. At the same time, Peter in Joppa, this is 56 kilometers apart, uh, Joppa and um, where Cornelius is in Caesarea, he says, Peter's receiving a vision of a sheep with all unclean animals and the word of the Lord comes to him, arise and eat. And Peter says, I wouldn't touch anything unclean. He's still living according to Jewish 
ceremonial customs about not eating unclean things. And the Lord says to him, arise, kill and eat. Do not call unclean what I have called clean. And what he's preparing Peter for was this incredible step of stepping into a Gentile's house and to preach the gospel. And the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles was about to come crashing down. It was demolished at the cross, but now the manifestation of it's about to take place. And as Peter is pondering about this vision he's got. There's a knock on the door. The messengers from Cornelius' house, I'll come. Our master has had a, a, a visitation of angel. He wants you to come and talk to him about salvation. So he goes in. You can read the sermon. Peter starts preaching about Jesus as he steps in. There's some Jewish believers with him and going, we don't know if we should be in this house. But Peter said, no, God spoke to me. It's all right. And look what happens. This is Acts 10 verse 44. He's well into his sermon. Faith has sparked in their lives and their hearts. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Remember, they've heard the message, they responded to the message, and now there's going to be this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. So this is a momentous moment in the life of the church and for us. This is the gospel coming to people like us, to the Gentiles. How did they know the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them? Listen. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their, their, their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit. How? Just as we have. They received the Holy Spirit. So you've got the day of Pentecost, and this is why I'm calling this the Gentile day of Pentecost. And the evidence was exactly the same. So what do we need to do? How do we respond? In Acts 2 verse 36, where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, therefore let all be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Saviour. And those hearing are convicted I'm just reading the conclusion. He has preached Jesus to them. They say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter gives them something to do, which means we've got to do something to be saved. It doesn't just happen. Now, we don't have to do much. We're not talking about doing as in earning your way to heaven. The only thing we need to do, and if you haven't already done it, is simply accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. This Jesus whom you crucified, you go, oh, I didn't, yeah. All of our sin caused Jesus to be crucified. All of our sin. We crucified him as much as the Roman soldiers did or the Jewish rulers did in the day. We crucified him. He died for our sin. He's now both Lord and Messiah. The first thing you need to do is say yes to Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to give you that opportunity. You've got to respond. 
You can't just be passive about the things of God. You're not working for your salvation, but God wants a response from us. I receive Jesus by faith as my Lord and Savior. I accept that he died for me, that his blood was shed for me. My sins are washed away and I receive the gift of eternal life. That's what you're actually doing when you put your faith, your trust in Jesus as Messiah. So in response, what must we do? Peter says, repent. It's a wonderful word, repentance. We, we focus so much on turning away from something, but really repentance is turning towards Jesus. And the minute you do that, you turn away from stuff. It means to change your mind, your thinking about Jesus. That's what the word repents and receive him as Lord and Savior. And then he says, be baptized. I want to encourage you. If you haven't been baptized in water by full immersion, you can be. And I'm not going to explain it all now, but we've got a brand new baptismal pool just waiting for you. And it's heated. I've got to keep the pastors out of their midweek. It's not a jacuzzi. I've got to tell no, it's, it, it will be heated. It's not currently got water in it, but it will be. And we can't wait to baptize the pool by baptizing you. And you can talk to somebody about it. You can scan the code, whatever. We'd love to help you take that step of faith. But notice this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you. I just want to dwell on that. The promise is for you. And maybe there's some things that have been said, you go, I need to rethink my experience. I need to rethink my theology on this. That, that's fine. This is not about creating pressure. We're going to create an opportunity, but I'm not trying to create pressure on you. Maybe you need to say, I need to do that course uh, that John Bevere has so generously given freely for me to listen to and watch and, and just get a hold of the, the whole person and the work of the Holy Spirit in a bigger way or to talk to one of the team. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and to all who are far off, all whom the Lord God will call. But the first question is, have you said yes to Jesus?